Welcome to the Energy Transition Podcast. I'm Ronan Kavner, and I'm delighted to be joined today by EI New Energy Editor, Lauren Kraft, to talk about some exciting developments in carbon pricing. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, Ronan. Well, thank you for coming along, Lauren. So, so carbon pricing seems to have gained you know, a noticeable surge of momentum this year. You know, what, what should we read into this? I would say a surge is a great word here, and that surge has been surprising in some ways. We've seen the start of the world's biggest emissions trading system in China, biggest by the amount of emissions covered, and that's come after years of delay. And we've also seen expansion proposed to the EU's longstanding carbon market. And then even Russia, which is often labeled a climate laggard, has launched what's a fairly ambitious carbon pricing experiment that they hope to expand. And it's clear this momentum is building up for a reason in response to pressures. We see climate diplomacy focusing more and more on 2030 emissions targets in addition to 2050 targets. And 2030, of course, is only eight and a half years away. So policymakers want to have a way to get their economies moving in that direction so that they don't fall short. They feel this pressure as well from investors and the public, and carbon pricing is one way to conceivably help make those emissions targets a reality because of the price signal they provide. And that can be powerful if the signal is clear and strong and designable. Now, you mentioned pressure on businesses. I mean, financial planners and and businesses, I mean, should be revisiting their expectations, should they, you know, in terms of government action in this space. But, you know, that's often more easily said than done, isn't it? I would certainly agree. This is more easily said than done. And planning for carbon pricing is much like traveling in a fog. It's murky, it's hard to predict, but at the same time, you've got to navigate through it. You've got to press on and be as alert and prepared as you possibly can. And that's why I recently dedicated a special edition of EI New Energy to aid that voyage. It's a roadmap that can't clear the fog, but we hope it does ease the way forward. So Lauren, take us through that. Firstly, this momentum. Um, it looks far from orderly though, doesn't it? Yes. And Of course, what most stakeholders would prefer if they have their way is alignment on carbon pricing, on carbon pricing levels, on carbon pricing designs, rather than a patchwork of different prices and different systems all over the world. But it is mostly the patchwork that's prevailing. In the future, more emission trading systems could be linked, which could provide some price convergence, but this is far from guaranteed. And I think a useful parallel is global currency of what to expect here. There's not a global currency, but there are rules that exist that uh, allow for currency trading and currency exchange. In the same vein, we energy intelligence expect carbon prices to be set at the country or regional level for the most part. We also expect many carbon prices to be implicit or hidden, for example, through fuel taxes or clean energy standards. So, I mean, where does this, where is this all headed? You know, what, what does the roadmap kind of indicate to us? It's clear that the overall direction is momentum and increased carbon pricing, uh, not only in terms of pricing levels, but also expanding in terms of geographical scope, which, which we're already seeing. So the trend would follow that this is going to keep happening. This is going to keep expanding. Carbon prices are going to keep growing. Uh, This could even include expansion in the near term because countries are rolling up their sleeves and 
fine tuning or preparing 2030 emissions targets as the landmark UN climate talks approach later this year. And ultimately planners, business planners, uh, political planners will need to keep an eagle eye on multiple moving pieces. Well, let's have a look at some of those moving pieces then. What should we be watching for? We'd say, we'd like to say it's important to watch two main dimensions when it comes to carbon pricing. The first is the most obvious, how future carbon prices might evolve, both in terms of the price level and the geographical reach of those prices. And then just as important on the flip side is the price of abatement, which is either the required cost to justify a low carbon technological investment to abate emissions or the cost of offsetting emissions that cannot easily be cut. But what kind of carbon prices are, are needed to achieve those sort of goals? Mm-hmm. Economists would say that to achieve carbon neutrality, carbon prices would need to be more expensive than the cost of eliminating the most difficult emissions to abate, the most hard to decarbonize sectors. But this could amount to hundreds of dollars per tonne of carbon dioxide by mid-century, which may not be realistic, politically speaking, economically speaking. We may get halfway there or partway there. But what about for, say, specific technologies, you know, to decarbonize kind of different sectors? How much would that cost? Roughly a price of 100 euros per tonne or $120 per tonne could be sufficient to trigger many technologies such as carbon capture and storage and direct air capture. Technologies such as power to liquids or power to gas would involve higher prices around 300 to 600 euros per ton, which is 350 to $700. High carbon prices would also be key to making synthetic fuels competitive against fossil fuels, especially in a world where oil prices are set to remain permanently low because of shrinking demand. If, for example, synthetic kerosene can be produced at $200 per barrel, carbon priced at $370 per ton would be needed for it to displace fossil kerosene with an oil price of $50 per barrel. Now, we've talked about kind of carbon pricing quite generally here, but how do you go about putting a price in carbon? I mean, what what are countries doing here? Mm -hmm. Pricing designs are very broad in terms of structure and the types of systems used and all seem to be gaining ground. And these include carbon markets, carbon taxes, and then again, the hidden or implicit carbon prices. In some cases, we also see a combination approach or an approach led by provinces or states as opposed to the central governments as we are seeing in Canada and the US, more of a regional approach. So tell us a bit more now about carbon market approach, which has been kind of quite a a popular one. Well, carbon markets have had a very long and perhaps a very checkered history, which shows how difficult they can be to really get right. Yet at the same time, markets remain a popular choice for many, and they do look set for growth in the coming decade. And there's two main types of markets. One is cap and trade systems, such as the EU emissions trading system, uh, also China's new carbon scheme, and then also regional markets in California and the new U.S. Northeast, those schemes. And then the other type is project-based offset markets. So cap and trade, how does that work? Well, under a cap and trade system, a regulator or some authority sets an emissions cap and progressively reduces it. So that cap, that bar becomes tougher to make. And 
with participants either investing in new technology to cut emissions or buying credits from others who have. The other main type of market involves generating project-based offset credits, such as the Corsia system that allows airlines to comply with carbon markets, with carbon targets, or participation by companies in voluntary markets to help meet perhaps their net zero pledges. Now, with those kind of offsetting credits, I mean, they're slightly problematic, problematic some of them, aren't they? Yes, and while there are many high-quality credits available, uh, independently verified quality credits, still the legitimacy of some credits are questionable. Agreement on an article of the Paris Agreement, known as Article 6, could help solve this problem. That article, in general, makes way for cooperative approaches to fulfilling climate pledges, and carbon markets are the main cooperative approach discussed because players can trade credits and cooperate in that sense. But agreement on Article 6 could potentially provide an accounting framework and perhaps establish a central mechanism to trade credits representing emissions reductions generated through specific projects. There's also a private sector group known as the Task Force on Scaling Up Voluntary Carbon Markets that is also looking to remove barriers to growth, barriers to growth, and provide a more robust structure for offsetting in the long run. I mean, it all seems quite complicated and difficult to get right. I mean, aren't taxes just easier? In some ways, yes. And carbon taxation has long been touted or championed as a simpler mechanism for governments and a more predictable system for businesses when compared with carbon markets. But Carbon taxes tend to guarantee no environmental outcome. They don't necessarily have that cap that we have with cap and trade. Uh, they also don't allow much room for carbon prices to fall lower if the cost of emissions abatement falls, unless it's designed so that the tax can be regularly updated, that it's nimble in that regard. Whether it's carbon taxes or levies or fees, they can be seen as forceful in nature, kind of a forceful approach to just levy attacks. But on the other hand, they do offer clear visibility, clear predictability. So who's going for kind of which option, you know, across the world on this? Generally speaking, whereas cap and trade has been the most popular tool in Europe and Asia, carbon taxation has been gaining more ground in North America. Good. Now, I mean, we were talking about carbon pricing there, markets, taxes, they're all very kind of apparent, very explicit. But carbon prices aren't always so so apparent, are they? That's exactly right. In many cases, carbon pricing is hidden or implicit. For example, road fuel taxes, while they are explicit in terms of the fuel taxes, they effectively send the same signal as a carbon price. So they act in a dual role. And while they're not labeled as a carbon tax or a carbon fee, they do send that same signal. And these fuel taxes are often substantial in most OECD countries. In the EU, for example, indirect taxes on gasoline amount to 250 to 300 euros per ton of CO2 emitted when using the fuel. I mean, that's a lot. But let's turn back, you know, looking at the kind of back on the the issue of taxes. I mean, one thing that's becoming kind of a little bit more clear is this idea of carbon border taxes, which the EU is looking at. I mean, what's this about? 
the idea is to avoid losing competitive ground to jurisdictions with laxer carbon rules or laxer climate targets, which is a problem known as carbon leakage, losing that competitive ground, having that economic leakage. And the EU plans to gradually implement what they're calling a carbon border adjustment mechanism. This will put, or it would put, a carbon price on imports of a targeted selection of products. And it could initially cover a select group of goods at a high risk of carbon leakage, such as iron, steel, cement, also fertilizers, aluminum, and power generation. But this is, this is engendering a lot, a lot of opposition already, isn't it? That's right. The EU argues that the CBAM, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, it's not, they argue that it's not protectionist, but they say that it's a logical protection as it applies a carbon price across, across the economy. Of course, this may not be needed if others follow Europe's lead and put a comparable price on carbon emissions themselves. And nor would the EU need to extend the ETS to shipping, for instance, if that industry's governing body were to speed up decarbonization efforts. And in fact, we see that it's possible that that may be the ultimate logic of the EU's proposal for a carbon border mechanism to spur on low carbon actions elsewhere. It's not necessarily designed to be punitive, but perhaps as a push. Exactly. Collective action, everybody moving. And kind of where else are we kind of seeing developments on on the carbon pricing front? Rather surprisingly, they're being discussed in the U.S. now, too. Democratic lawmakers just recently have proposed levying taxes on energy and manufactured goods imported from countries with higher greenhouse gas emissions. Complicating matters naturally is the fact that the U.S. does not have its own domestic carbon tax, at least uh, an explicit one. The basis for levying the tax, rather, would be a country's comparative greenhouse gas levels, not their carbon pricing levels. So lots to watch there. I mean, lots to watch everywhere, really, isn't there? That's right. Carbon pricing is now clearly going somewhere. It's regained some momentum. And if the current trend holds, it'll keep going in that direction unless, you know, something changes in the world. But again, we have a lot of that fog remaining, too. So time will tell what form the momentum on carbon pricing takes, how much of the world will be covered and at what price levels. And I mean, looking forward this year, I mean, clearly COP26, the big UN climate talks in Glasgow are going to be important in in, in this context. Exactly. The surge of momentum we've been discussing on carbon pricing, I'd say it's undoubtedly linked to the approach in Glasgow talks. And we should be watching to see what countries bring to the table before, during, and after the talks in the way of either explicit or implied carbon pricing or similar actions that effectively take the same steps that take the same or make the same signals. Negotiations around Article 6 of the Paris Agreement that we discussed earlier could also prove important to watch. And this could set out the rule book for those cooperative approaches to carbon pricing, such as trading and taxes, and perhaps set up a new project-based offsetting mechanism. It's a space to watch. Interesting. And, and I hope you can come back and tell us more about these things closer to the event. And thank you as well, to Lauren, for coming today and, and sharing those insights with us. It was my joy. Thank you, Ronan.
So that just leaves it for me to say thank you to our listeners for, for tuning in today. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that you'll tune in again for our next Energy Transition podcast. Mm-hmm.